take our Bibles and turn together to the book of 1 Timothy. Believe it or not, I could remember today most of our approach to 1 Timothy the last time we went through this book. We are, for those who may not be aware, going back and catching a few books from within our overview series that were either skipped because they were the focus of a Sunday morning sermon series at that particular moment, or the audio files for those uh, reviews were corrupted in some way and lost to us, and we wanted a complete library on our website of uh, the, the overview of the biblical books. This is one of those um, for which the audio file was corrupted along the way. But I could remember much of the approach. The benefit of that is that we can approach 1 Timothy in a slightly different, but I hope equally beneficial way than the last time we went through. It's been a little bit less than a year since we went through 1 Timothy, and so we're going to give it a go again tonight, focusing on uh, some slightly different features of the book than the last time we went through. The outline that you have in hand is effectively the same as it was last time, but we'll uh, emphasize or camp out on some different parts of 1 Timothy than we did the first time through. 1 Timothy is the first of three letters from the Apostle Paul that comprise this section of the New Testament known as the pastoral epistles, referred to as pastoral epistles because these letters are written to pastors in the church, 1st and 2nd Timothy to the young protege of the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and Titus to a young pastor, and I'm using that terminology loosely, uh, named Titus, who was serving in the area of Crete and was left, up, left behind, assigned by the Apostle Paul to appoint elders in all of those congregations in the city of Crete or even in the region of Crete. These letters address Paul's concerns for Timothy and uh, Titus, specific to 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy, a young church leader who came to faith under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. These letters deal with a host of issues relevant to the church, from roles of men and women to ministering to widows within the body. There is a great deal said here in 1 Timothy about body life, about how the church is to function and to operate. You, you might be somewhat surprised if you're unfamiliar with 1 Timothy at just how specific the book can be with regards to ministry functions within the body of Christ. For instance, with regards to ministering to the needs of widows, Paul is specific enough as to give a specific age range. He identifies in the pastoral epistles that older women, by definition, are those women who are 60 years or older. So if you find that offensive, take it up with the Apostle Paul. I didn't say it, right? <laughs> he says below that number, and understand we're dealing at a different time in history with life expectancies, um, far less than what they are in our day. But if you're dealing with a younger widow, Paul says there's a certain approach to ministry in that setting. If you're dealing with an older widow, there's a certain approach to ministry that should be undertaken by the body. Um, I think sometimes people are surprised at just how specific and just how practical the Apostle Paul is here in 1 Timothy. One of the things that we did the last time through 1 Timothy, and I want us to touch on a bit this evening because I think it's central to what Paul is doing in these three letters, is to look at a series of five faithful sayings, uh, three in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy, and one in Titus. When I say five faithful sayings, there is this specific Greek phrase that is used in the pastoral epistles. You'll read it in the English as, this is a faithful saying. And in a few cases, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all 
acceptance. It's pistis ha lagos in the Greek text. And it, it intends to identify an axiom of the faith which is foundational to the good function and health of the church. An, an axiom is, is simply a, a truth that you ought to be able to presume upon. It's, it's the point at which we begin to reason. These are underlying truth commitments that we hold so near and dear in our heart, they are so fundamentally clear to us that they are beyond dispute. We begin conversation, we begin debate at these points, but, but these truths are not themselves in any way, shape, form, or fashion at all in question. I want to walk you through a few of those just quickly, because I think this gives us a bit of a feel for what Paul's up to in the pastoral epistles. The first comes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 15. The Bible says here, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So this foundational, fundamental truth is the reality that Jesus has come into the world to save sinful people. And the Apostle Paul identifies himself as the chief of sinners or first among sinners. This seems to be a bit of a pushback against legalism in the church. Like many of the churches in the Gentile world, there was this wrestling against the legalism of Judaism, Jewish believers who were coming into the faith, or at least coming into the life of the church, who insisted upon the continual observance of the laws of Moses, which was obviously quite problematic for those Gentile members of the body. And Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus came as the great physician, not for those who were not in need of healing, but with the medicine the chief of sinners himself needs most in, in a most desperate way. Paul came to, uh, Jesus came rather to save sinners, and Paul identifies himself as among that congregation of sinners. The second faithful saying comes in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at this verse in greater detail perhaps in a few moments. Chapter 3 and verse 1 begins with this is, or this saying is trustworthy. You might render that somewhat differently, but the effect is the same. This is, again, a faithful saying. And what's in view when Paul makes this statement in verse 1 is virtually everything that comes between verses 1 and verse 13 of chapter 3, which is where the qualifications for church leadership is detailed by the Apostle Paul. Now, it's interesting to me, it always has been, that Paul would begin by saying, these are axioms of the faith. This is the starting point of conversation, but the truths enumerated here are not, they're, they're not to be questioned. They're not debatable. This happens to be one of those passages that in so many churches is so often debated. Perhaps we'll deal with some of those questionable issues, at least in the mind of some. I would argue that there's not much questionable at all about what Paul says in verses 1 through 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, that uh, to serve as an officer within the life of the church demands a great deal of one's character. I would point out that much of what is described here is not at all doctrinal, but actually focused on the character of the individual in view. That is not to say that sound doctrine is not important. Paul makes that abundantly clear throughout the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and in Titus but that the character is the primary concern with regards to distinguishing the qualifications for service as a bishop, as an overseer, as a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, whatever the terminology may be. This is a faithful saying. In other words, the health of the church 
is, is grounded in healthy, qualified servants holding offices within the life of the church. Anytime there is a deviation from the qualifications enumerated here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it is always inevitably fall, followed by decline or fall within the life of the church that chooses to deviate from this standard. The third faithful saying in 1 Timothy comes in chapter 4 and verse number 9. This time it's on the back end of the faithful saying. It's not the introductory phrase, it is the conclusion. Verse 9 says this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. What Paul has in view in verse 9 are verses 6 and following, where the Bible says, if you point these things out to brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you followed, but have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what Paul's doing here is he's connecting sound doctrine to solid godly living. I would challenge you sometimes, for those of you among us who regard yourselves as somewhat more doctrinaire, to just search the terminology of doctrine in the New Testament, specifically the word doctrine, and, and see what context you find the word itself in. Most of the time when we think of doctrine or theology in our church context, we think of kind of abstract concepts about God that, that may serve to undergird in some ways our faith, but don't always necessarily have direct practical bearing in our life. In other words, doctrine for us, more often than not, is what we do reading books or sitting in lectures or having conversations in circles about the things of God. But that is not the way doctrine is regarded in the New Testament. In fact, I would argue on the basis of the teaching of the New Testament and the use of that language that until you've dealt with or addressed the practical implications of any doctrine, you have yet to do doctrine according to the New Testament. In other words, what you believe has to come to bear in your life practically. And that's precisely the thing the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. And it's illustrated powerfully in Paul's letters. Think of the way Paul writes. Ephesians is the cleanest example of this. Doing doctrine or doing theology. But you cannot divorce those chapters from what Paul says in chapters 4, verses six, or four through 6. It's in those chapters that Paul draws out the practical implications of the theological foundations that have been established in those first three chapters of the book. And what I would argue is that until you've done that, you have yet to do doctrine. Just engaged most of the time in some degree of conjecture, because that's what it ends up being when disconnected from practical reality. It must mean something to us to take note in our head and our heart that God is three in one, three persons, co-equal in essence, but unique, distinct in substance. What it means for us is that in the foundation of the world, there was fellowship within the Godhead. The God is eternally loving and has expressed his affection endlessly, eternally, within the Godhead itself, that there was communion, there was fellowship even before there was mankind. 
this kind of breakdown, this kind of disconnect, losing sight, losing focus of even what we might consider to be an obscure doctrine can poison the rest of our understanding of the Bible. And it results in people saying things like, well, God made us because he needed fellowship or he wanted fellowship. I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God at no point in time in eternity past ever needed fellowship. He enjoyed that imperfection within the framework of the Godhead. And so you wind up with an overly elevated understanding of who man is and a devaluing of who God is. Now, I think if if I was to poll the congregation and ask of the most difficult to understand doctrines, or perhaps even the most obscure doctrines, there'd be many who would identify the Trinity as among the most difficult to understand. And yet there are very real practical implications of our understanding of that doctrine that influence the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, and the way we regard the world around us. We, we, We have to get beyond just talking conceptually about who God is and what God has done and, and, and make sure that we're drawing these doctrines all the way down to where real life exists, where the rubber meets the road. I was on a panel a few years ago, probably a panel that I did not deserve to be on, on doctrinal preaching <laughs> with what I would regard to be nationally recognizable men of renown on the topic of doctrinal preaching. And everybody was trashing application. And I get the pushback. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear a sermon that is three stories from your life and one minuscule point at the end of the three stories on your life that I probably don't care about, right? Like, I get the pushback. I get what that's all about. But we have yet to do doctrine until we have addressed what what difference this makes in my life. What difference does it make to say that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, in grace alone, to the glory of God alone? What practical difference does that make? Well, it means on the worst day for me that I need and despair. Because the God who has saved me is able to keep me. And all my fears and anxieties are settled. Do you see what I mean? These doctrines, as we've identified them, are more than abstract concepts and must be drawn down to the practical realities that we face on an everyday basis. And Paul is calling for precisely that in this particular faithful saying. The fourth and fifth come in, in 2 Timothy and in Titus. Uh, perhaps we can make note of them just briefly. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 11, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is a powerful reality. The the fifth and final of these faithful sayings comes over in Titus chapter 3. It's in verse 8, but again, that's that's the close of the section that Paul has in view. It's really the message of the gospel in verses 4 through 7. He's identifying here as the faithful saying. He says, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. Those five readings ought to give you an understanding of what Paul is effectively doing in the pastoral epistles. First, 2 Timothy and Titus is the constitution and bylaws of the early church. This is how we function. These are our doctrinal commitments. These are our non-negotiable doctrinal commitments. This is how we're going to work to do ministry. This is who can serve in various capacities. And these are the offices of the church. This is a far more practical work than what we often realize in looking specifically at 1 Timothy. You can't talk about this book without dealing with the issue of officers in the church. This is where I mentioned earlier remembering our previous look at the book and choosing to go a slightly different way this time around. I want you to understand something of the terminology that's used with regards to officers in the church and some of the rationale behind that. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, Paul says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He mustn't be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he doesn't fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So those are the qualifications for the overseer. And in recent decades in Baptist life, this whole conversation of who is an overseer and what is an overseer has been a, a point of, of some conflict. You might note that we don't make reference here within our church to pastors as overseers. There are some denominations that use the language of overseers and even some denominations that use the language of overseer in a different way. You might also note that in some of the translations that perhaps you're reading tonight, that term overseer is translated not as overseer, but as bishop. Episkopos is actually the Greek term that lies behind both the words overseer and bishop that you're reading perhaps in your English translations. And in some denominational structures, there is a distinction made between the office of, of overseer or bishop and the office of pastor. Let's talk through this for just a few minutes. In recent conversation, you hear the language of bishop, the language of pastor, and the language of elder. And it's become somewhat controversial to have conversations about eldership and the plurality of elders serving within the local church and how does all that work, how does that operate, and how is that different than the office of pastor. What I want to show you in just a moment is that pastor and bishop and, and elder are actually the same office referred to in different terminology. Y'all with me? I can show you that in Acts chapter 20 in, in just a moment. In fact, if you want to turn over there, we'll, we'll see it in just a second. Bishop is really the proper way of making reference to the office of, of pastor. And we don't use that language, and there's nothing that would compel us to use that, use that language. There's certainly nothing wrong with using 
pastor in order to designate that particular office. Just understand that it can be used interchangeably with bishop. On some level, it is synonymous with that terminology. Bishop and pastor are effectively the same. Bishop, in my estimation, has reference to the position itself, the office that is held. Elder has reference to the person that holds the office, if that makes sense. It's a person who's of established character within the church, of established character within the community, and of sound doctrine such that he would bear the title of, of elder, presbyteros. Some of these Greek terms may sound familiar to you. That's why I cite them, because episkopos is the Greek term from which episcopal comes, and presbyteros is the Greek term from which Presbyterian comes. And you might note that within those denominational structures, there is great emphasis in the case of Episcopals on the office of bishop, and within the case of the Presbyterian church, there is great emphasis placed on the office of elder. In Baptist life, we have chosen rather to use a somewhat unique word to designate the office of pastor, and the word is pastor, poimen, which is used far more often in the New Testament as a verb than it is as a noun. In other words, it's, it really occurs very, very few times, maybe only a couple of times as a noun in the New Testament. The rest of the time, it has, it's used as a verb. Whereas bishop is a way of making reference to the, to the office or the position, and elder is a way of making reference to the person, pastor is a way of making reference to his practice. Pastor is, is really a, a description of what the bishop or the elder does more so than a description of the office itself. Again, there's nothing at stake in determining which of those terms that you're going to use. I just want you to see how in the New Testament these words are, are functioning synonymously. They can all three have reference to the same individual. And I can show you that if you'll turn over just quickly to Acts chapter 20 and verse number 17. It's in Acts 20 that Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's on a missionary trip. He's headed in one direction, and he's not coming back. And his desire is to encourage these men who've meant so much to him in his ministry. In verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, the Bible says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. He called for the elders of the church. Now look down to verse 28. This is within Paul's instruction to those elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as an overseer to shepherd the church of God. Now the term there, overseer, is again episkopos. And the term there, shepherd the church of God, is the Greek term poimen. It's the verb form, but it's the word from which we take the language of shepherding or pastoring. Again, elder, bishop, pastor, used interchangeably of the same group of men. So the idea of having this hierarchical structure within the church where pastors are overseen by overseers or bishops and elders come somewhere below that is a system or a structure that is altogether foreign to the New Testament. Again, these are just ways of making reference to the position to the person and the practice of those men who hold these particular offices. Often in Baptist life, what is in view, and if there's any controversy whatsoever, 
is, is how many elders there will be functioning within a congregation. And usually what it really boils down to is whether or not there will be lay elders within the life of that church or not. This is just a little inside baseball with regards to Baptist life. The reality is that most churches function now with a plurality of elders. There are multiple pastors on the staff of our church, for instance. And because the Bible says that a wise man walks in the counsel of many, there is scarcely any decision that I will make without consulting the wisdom and discretion of those other men who hold the office of pastor within the life of our church. My personal conviction is that I don't see the urgency or necessity of having lay elders within the life of the church because Paul says that the ideal is that the elder, especially one who labors in word and in doctrine, would be worthy of double honor. In other words, he would be provided for, his needs would be met by the congregation that is under his care. Certainly, that is not a principle that does not have a measure of flexibility, but it does represent from the Apostle Paul the ideal structure or organizational structure of the church itself. So that's usually what's in view when questions of eldership and pastors and the distinction between those offices uh, is being discussed within the life of the church. On a more troubling note, there are ongoing conversations about who can hold the office of pastor specific to gender roles within the life of the church. And there is a twisting and manipulation of our use of the language of pastor in Baptist life in order to seek to broaden in an unbiblical way uh, the qualifications for the office of pastor. What I'm hearing said among more moderate Baptists is pastor is a verb, not a noun in most cases in the New Testament. So surely we would not limit women from being able to practice shepherding or meeting the spiritual needs of those within the life of the church. To which I would say, you're exactly right. We would not limit ladies from exercising their spiritual giftedness and abilities often, which exceeds many of the men within the life of the church. Neither would we violate the clear teaching of the scripture by elevating in some way um, the office of pastor in the verbal sense to that of elder or bishop or uh, an official capacity of service that would clearly mark a break with the clear teaching of Scripture. So you have to be careful at times with the use of this language because as is often the case, Satan likes to manipulate and distort terminology so as to rob us of the ability to speak with clarity about the truth of the gospel and the healthy operation of the church. Anytime I hear someone that begins a conversation about who can be a pastor, by taking note of the fact that we use pastor and it's almost exclusively verbal in the New Testament, I'm always suspicious of what they'll say immediately after that, right? It really makes no difference what you call the office. Paul has limited the office to men who are qualified according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And about that, there is no conflict or disagreement. After all, this is one of those passages about which Paul says, this is an axiomatic truth, a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance within the body of Christ. I would press again, the idea here is that these are men of good character serving in these capacities. The second office is discussed in verses 8 and following of chapter 3. The Bible says deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, 
and they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children in their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the unfortunate realities about 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that so much of what the Bible says here is often overshadowed in our culture where divorce is such a common experience by the questions of what it means to be the husband of one wife. We have, as a body, and I, I, I rejoice in our clarity on this issue, stipulated that in order to serve in the office of deacon or the office of pastor within the life of our church, a man nor his wife could have ever experienced a divorce. Now, I realize there are situations where that happens completely beyond an individual's control. I get there can be any number of variables that can contribute to that, but I think it's worth rejoicing in that there has been a position taken and clearly stated as a congregation so as to alleviate or prevent dispute with regards to that issue moving forward. We could get into the weeds of the countless variables that can contribute to the unfolding of a divorce and the fairness of that standard and what this means within its first century context and all of those sorts of things. But it's sufficient, I think, to say that our standard, our expectation, and what we have articulated as a body certainly falls within the boundaries of what the Apostle Paul is describing here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is, again, a great deal that is missed within this chapter because that becomes the singular focus. And I've observed and been a part of congregations where that was kind of the exclusive qualification, right? Because there wasn't real keen interest in examining the full character of men within the body. It was simply a list of who, who, who can pass the hadn't been divorced exam and we're going to roll them into this office in some capacity which is a woefully inadequate way of examining qualifications and can lead to absolute disaster somewhere down the road. At the same time, you've seen this, many of you have observed this in other congregations, the mixing and mingling of the offices of elder and deacon, or overseer and deacon. Most, let's just be real, most Baptist churches in our part of the world, function under the heavy hand of the authority of the deacon body, right? If you're new to us, that is not the way we operate at Longview Point. And we won't operate that way. Not only because it's not biblical, but because frankly, some deacons aren't qualified to be elders. And a lot of elders are not qualified to be deacons. I used to make the point I used to make the point in a, in a sort of agricultural context where I was serving that some churches had this hybrid model and farmers kept reminding me of what you call hybrids on the farm and so I have tried to cease using that terminology. But you just, it just doesn't mix and mingle well. Not every deacon is a good, healthy elder, has the capacity, the gifting, the acumen for that. Not every elder has the ability, the heart, the gifts, the, the, the tool set in order to serve faithfully and effectively as a deacon. What you'll find within the qualifications of the, de of the deacon and within discussion of the office of deacon in other New Testament passages is that it is an office exclusive 
to service within and without the body of Christ. It is not administrative. It is not executive. It is not financial for the most part. It is a service-oriented office within the body of Christ. Whereas the responsibilities of administration and oversight are exclusive to the office of elder because it requires doctrinal insight as virtually every decision that we make as a body has doctrinal implications on some level. And I think there needs to be great care in being precise about how responsibilities within the life of the church are allocated in order that they're in the hands of those God has specifically called, equipped, and gifted to discharge their role in the oversight and, and, and undertaking of those particular responsibilities. I hope that all that resonates. It's important to who we are as a congregation, that, that the leadership of our church lies with the pastors of our church. We are a pastor-led and deacon-served congregation, and we will endeavor for all of our days to remain just that. That's a difficult, that's a, that, that sounds really simple. It's really easy for me to say that. And I, I know, listen, some of you come from congregations where they would say that. And they'd be lying like dogs if they said it, right? Sometimes, sometimes our actions betray the words of our mouth. But in this particular case, it, it really truly is the model that we hold to. It is the model that in my estimation is put forth in the New Testament and we want to continue to insist upon that so that as folks from all over the world and from all over the kingdom come into the life of our church, that that toxic church governance culture does not find its way in that cancerous way into our congregation. It's just a woefully unhealthy thing. So those are the offices of the church. Now, I don't know where... I don't, I don't know what corner of hell the committee came from in the Baptist church, but you'll notice it does not come from 1 Timothy chapter number 3, right? It's just a little Baptist humor. Just a little Baptist humor. So a major focus, we just have just a moment, of, of the pastoral epistles is the ministry of the word. Man, Paul is on this, right? The ministry of the word, the ministry of the word. Be faithful in the preaching of the word. And there are a number of passages that we could go to just quickly to point, the centra point to the centrality of this. The way the book closes, look at chapter 6 and verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding by professing it some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. Hold fast to the faith, Timothy says. The gospel that saved you from your sin is to be the centerpiece of your ministry. Preach the word, Timothy. Look back to chapter 6 and verse 2. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. Don't get sucked in to the debate of the day. I've been a guy over the course of my ministry that thinks the pastor ought to be on some level engaging in the pulpit with the issues of the day. Like I see value in that. I see discipleship opportunity in shepherding our congregation 
through challenging, controversial, or difficult issues that may be arising. But I got to tell you, it is insanely frustrating, and I'm like at a place of just saying, forget it. And, 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 and coming to good gospel conclusions in the sermon and just having to trust you to sort of work it all out. Because you, you literally cannot keep up with the constant barrage of controversial issues. You're, you're constantly bombarded with the next controversy, the next scandal, the next conflict. I mean, you wouldn't have time for the gospel if you gave attention for everything that's popping up today. We're, we're so constantly fed by news and constantly fed by conflict. The priority of one's minute, listen, again, I value the discipleship opportunity that real-life situations can afford us, but we can never afford to get entangled with the dealings of the day at the cost of giving time and focus and attention to a thorough presentation and explanation of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a moment ago that until we have done application, we have yet to do doctrine. And I would say the same with regards to preaching. Until we have done application, we have yet to do biblical preaching. But unless we have done gospel doctrine, we have yet to even begin to preach. Paul says again and again and again, give your time to the public reading of the word. Exhort the church, encourage them preach the word, be faithful in season and out of season. It's, 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 not, it's not our preaching that makes the word powerful. It's, it's the word that makes our preaching powerful when we put that as the focal point of the message itself. It is the gospel that saves sinners from sin. This is, after all, the first and foremost of these faithful sayings. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We are, and we're numbered among them. If not ourselves, chief among them. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. For your leadership by the spirit. For the direction that we find here in the scripture and your word. I pray God that we would hold the things of this world loosely. Always regard ourselves as under the authority of your word. We would... Know in our hearts that your word is sufficient. That it would be the final word in all matters of faith and practice. That you would help us to know and understand your word. That you'd help us to put it to practice in our personal life. Help us to know, God, that we've not yet begin, begun to declare the message unless or until we have declared the gospel. And we have not yet begun to do doctrine in the truest sense, God, until we have brought in our hearts and minds and in and in real practice, God, the gospel down to where the rubber meets the road. Help us, Lord, to well discern the implications of the message of the gospel in all of our life. Guard us as a body against error. Help us, Lord, to steward well what you've entrusted to us. Protect us. May the lampstand remain firmly in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.